You may have read a few months ago about an experiment that the Washington Post conducted. It was an interesting study that gives some insight into human nature. What they did was they took a world-class musician named Joshua Bell. He's a famous violin player. His works have been featured in movies, in soundtracks. He plays all across the world. He's in demand in almost every country that has a deep appreciation of classical music. In fact, in some of his performances in America, when you go back and see the ticket prices and how much he made from a certain concert, he charges just about up to $1,000 a minute when everything is considered. I mean, this is a high-priced, world-class musician. And he was in Washington, D.C., performing at the Library of Congress. And remember, this is a musician where the cheap seats to his concert usually grow for about $100 and up. And so he was performing that night at the Library of Congress. But what was really interesting is what took place the next morning. See, the next morning, the Washington Post correspondents dropped him off in the middle of a metro station at the height of morning rush hour. And he put down his case and he began playing to see how many people would notice him. Now it's interesting, not only did they sit a world-class musician in the middle of this metro station, he wasn't playing on just any violin. He used the same instrument that he'd played the night before, the same instrument that he now plays everywhere he goes, a Stradivarius that cost him about three and a half million dollars to purchase. It's widely considered one of the best instruments that Stradivarius ever created. And so not only do you have one of the best violin players, you have one of the best instruments. And he began playing a piece by Bach that is considered one of the most difficult violin pieces to master. In fact, they said many try, but few can ever play it the way that Joshua Bell can play it. So he's here in a crowded metro station, a violin that costs millions of dollars, playing an incredibly hard piece to see how many people would stop and notice him. He had his case open, and the musician that makes about $1,000 a minute for playing about 41, 42 minutes made $32 and some change. There were 1,040 plus people that walked by and never even gave him a second glance. These are people who may never have the chance to be in the same room as Joshua Bell again, walked by without even looking at him. Only about 20 to 30 people even stopped to acknowledge his presence, usually throwing in some change absentmindedly as they were on their way to work or class. There was only a handful that stopped to listen and only one or two that ever recognized him. It was fascinating, and you can see this footage all over the internet. This article has been published widely. And one of the things that's so fascinating about it is it reveals an aspect of human nature. That is, we can have something beautiful, something incredible, something amazing in the same room with us, but if our focus is somewhere else, we can walk by and totally miss it. Some of the people they interviewed didn't even realize there was a person playing violin in the metro station. That's how distracted they were. They were listening to their iPods or thinking about the class they had to make it to or, or where they had to go for work and what needed to be done that day. They walked past a world-class musician playing world-class music and didn't give it a second glance. It's interesting where our focus is and how that determines our attitude, isn't it? Do you know this morning when we look at the life of Samson, we're going to be looking 
at the life of someone whose different chapters can be understood best by where his focus was at those times in his life. You see, it's possible for us, even as Christians, to have something out in front of us that's beautiful, something amazing, something that we should follow, and yet our focus can be so off-kilter that we totally miss it. I invite you, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. While you're turning there, uh, let me tell you, if you're a visitor visiting with us, we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, It may be that you are here with us as a result of our Vacation Bible School this past week. We had a wonderful VBS. If you're here with us, please stay around after service and let us get to talk to you and get to know you a little more and find out ways we can encourage you. As we think about the life of Samson, we realize that this judge, Samson, is different than any of the other judges uh, we read about in the book of Judges. No other judge really has the strength from God that Samson has, or this unique life, this unique task that Samson is given. In our Pew Packers class on Sunday afternoon, when we go over the book of Judges, one of the key words we use to remember this book is the word cycles, because you see a cycle that takes place over and over again as the people of Israel leave God's Word, leave God's law, and begin intermarrying with other groups. They begin following other false gods, and they come over here, and finally they'll hit rock bottom. They'll cry out to God. God will raise up a judge who will put them back on the right path, and they'll stay there for a while until the cycle repeats itself. And so through the book of Judges, you have this constant cycle of Israel being with God, away from God, with God, away from God. And finally, we have the story here towards the end of this book of Samson. And what's interesting is that Samson's story, in a lot of ways, mirrors the Israelites' story. Because we're going to see Samson be set apart. We're going to be Samson given special guidelines, and he falls from that position. And eventually he hits rock bottom. And so in a way, his life mirrors the life of the Israelites. Let's look back at the scripture that Jack read for us as we think about the specific commands that Samson's parents are given here, beginning in verse 4 and then following in verse 5 of Judges 13. The angel says, Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. When we look back to the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers chapter 6, we see a lot written about the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was designed if someone wanted to take a certain amount of days, a certain amount of time, and set himself apart for service to God, there were some things he would abstain from in that time. But Samson's life, his entire life, is going to be characterized by this Nazarite vow. It's from the day of his birth, and verse 7 of chapter 13 even tells us, to the day of his death, he is going to be a Nazarite. And so as we think about the Old Testament commands and also these direct commands, we know that a Nazarite was not to touch a dead body. It was not, that would have obviously been unclean in Jewish law anyway. A Nazarite was not to touch a dead body, not to drink any wine, anything that came from the grapevine. And also, and we probably remember this more than anything else about Samson, not to have a razor touch his head. And we remember Samson with this long hair that symbolized his strength and symbolized his nature being set apart for service to God. Now let's just pause right there. Doesn't that sound a lot like God's plan for Israel? 
Doesn't that sound a lot like God who told Abraham and, and, and Sarah when they were Abram and Sarai before they'd even thought of Isaac being born that he would make his descendants into a great nation? And just a few generations later, we have the Israelites. And God gives the Israelites a specific set of commands. A specific set of tasks. Here are the sacrifices that you need to make. Here's what you need to eat. Here's what you don't need to eat. He gave them a specific set of guidelines. And we have the same task that's given Samson in the life to live a life that's set apart from everyone around him. And you know, in that way, Samson also mirrors our lives as well. As Christians, aren't we given specific set of rules and guidelines to live our lives by? Not to deprive us of, of any pleasure, but to allow us to have ultimate, eternal, and meaningful joy. Don't we have the same task to be set apart, to be different? And so we can learn a lot from Samson's life as we see the different phases of his life displayed through his eyes. When you think about Samson's life this morning, I want us to look through Samson's eyes. See where his focus was at different points. Because again, it's possible for us to walk by something amazing, to walk completely past the will of God because our focus is somewhere else. The first thing we'll notice about Samson this morning as we think about his eyes is that when we are introduced to Samson, his eyes are trained on physical pleasure. Turn to Judges chapter 14 with me. We're going to look at a few different passages that illustrate Samson's focus. We're going to see that Samson is really, at this point in his life, ruled by his passions. He's ruled by, by what he can see, by what he wants, what would gratify that physical nature. Beginning in verse 2 of chapter 14, we read, So he went up, speaking of Samson, and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. I want us just to pause right here. Do you remember what verse 5 of chapter 13 told us about Samson's life? Do you remember what his mission was in life? Sometimes people will struggle with finding uh, answers to the question, What is my purpose in life? Samson never had to wonder about that. An angel of the Lord told his parents Samson's purpose was going to begin to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Philistines. That was his purpose in life. He knew what his mission was. And so when it comes time to select a wife, it's odd that he's chosen a Philistine woman. We don't seem to see any consideration. Does that not, does that not conflict with my mission? Does that not conflict with a position that he would have as a leader of Israelites? to intermarry with another nation. We don't see a lot of concern there. But what we do see is in verse 2 and verse 3, Samson is focused on something he wants. In verse 2, he says, I've seen a woman in Timnah. And then in verse 3, he says, she pleases me well. A, a literal translation of that verse could read, she is right in my eyes. And if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it's because it's used later on in the book of Judges. The very last verse in the entire book, chapter 21, verse 25, says there was no Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You see, Samson has that, that mindset of what is right in my eyes. She pleases me well. Interestingly enough, verse 4 is, tells us that God is going to use this in order to have an occasion for Samson to rise up against the Philistines. But Samson's mindset doesn't seem to be concerned about what God would want. It doesn't seem to be concerned about an example he would set. He's concerned about what would please him. And that eventually takes him down a road that leads to a lot of conflict. 
In fact, as we read through chapters 14 and 15, we see a story in which, in which Samson goes down. He's attacked by a young lion. He kills the lion. Later on, there are going to be bees that make a hive in that lion. Honey is going to come from that. Samson is so struck by that image, he uses that as a riddle at this feast. And he challenges everyone with this riddle. Finally, there are a group of men that threaten Samson's soon-to-be wife with death and burning her father's house if she does not get Samson to tell her the meaning of this riddle. Well, Samson does. Uh, she does. Go, pass that on to these uh, Philistine men. They're able to answer him. Samson is furious. In order to come up with his part of the bargain, he agreed to give them 30 changes of clothes. If they could answer the riddle, he kills 30 of the Philistine men and gives their change of clothes. Offers that as the price. Later on, his, his soon-to-be wife is given to another man. He's so furious that he goes and catches 300 foxes. Now, if you wonder whether or not Samson was strong... Think about what it would take to catch one fox. And yet he goes out, catches all these foxes, puts a torch in between each pair of them on their tail, sets them loose, and then they set fire to all of these crops. Philistines are so angry, they go to attack Samson. And then you have that famous scene where he kills 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Samson is powerful. God has given him tremendous power. And what's interesting is where that leads us, to chapter 16. Look at the first verse of Judges 16. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. So we have Samson doing these wonderful, amazing, even miraculous feats of strength by the power of God. And then verse 1 of chapter 16, we're back to looking at physical pleasure again. And he goes in to seek this gratification not only from a prostitute, but he goes into Gaza where there are men that are lining up to ambush him after that. It's only a couple of verses later in verse 4 that we're introduced to Delilah, who is the woman we uh, we think of most often when we think of Samson. Now, we can know a lot about Delilah by knowing the, the meaning that her name carried with it. Her name literally carries the meaning of being flirtatious. And so we have here Samson falling in love in verse 4 with a woman from the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And look at what takes place in verse 5. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. We had the first woman that Samson loved of the Philistines that he wanted to marry, she was threatened with death and burning her father's house. Delilah is not threatened with death, but profit. She's given the opportunity to have a payday. She takes advantage of that. Let's pause here for just a moment and think about what it means when our eyes are focused only on physical pleasure. Do you know there is trouble when we decide to do only what is right in our own eyes? And we understand that On a basic level, it seems like a simple principle, but if you'll look at the world around us, we are getting the message constantly, just do what you think is right. There's no absolute truth, there's no absolute right or wrong, but whatever you think is right, whatever's right for you, your truth. And when we look at the life of Samson, we learn that doing what is right in our own eyes won't always lead us into a place we want to go. We had an awesome VBS this past week. In fact, Wednesday, we had 401 students, 12th grade and below, and 100 of those were at Charlie Daniels Park for the 6th through 12th graders. We had 300 students here, 5th grade and younger. That's a lot of kids to be in one place. We had some wonderful line leaders. 
Did you know that some of our line leaders for our younger classes, our three-year-old and four-year-old, they would have, once all those classes were combined, 40 kids that were three years old. They're 40 four-year-olds. Now, can you imagine spending three hours with a group of 43-year-olds and letting each one do what was right in his or her own eyes? That's not going to last very long if you're a line leader. We, we understand there has to be some rules. There has got to be some consistency here. And yet, sometimes we're quick to throw that principle out the window when we think of our own life. You see, we can get into trouble when we do only what is right in our own eyes. And did you notice that every time Samson made a choice to gratify his physical nature, he walked into a trap? Have you ever noticed that? When, when he came up with this riddle that was going to impress everyone because of a woman of the Philistines that he loved, he walked into a trap. When he decided he was going to go and, and gratify his physical nature and, and, and visit a prostitute, he walked into a trap. And when he decided that he fell in love with Delilah and he was making decisions based on only that feeling, he walks into a trap. How many traps does Satan lay for Christians that are based on us wanting to, to focus only on our physical nature? If I get so focused on what my physical desires are, I can walk right into a trap that Satan has set for me. In a country in where our national debt is somewhere over $9 trillion, it may happen this way. We might become so consumed with the material world around us, not just having a place to live, but having a certain kind of house, a certain kind of place. Not just having something to drive, but a certain kind of car to drive. And we're, we're looking for what will give us the right kind of status and the right kind of friends. And what are we going to do in our free time that will give us that right kind of image? And we become so focused with that, we might overextend ourselves. We might find ourselves in a position where we are so overextended financially that we're hurting. We're wondering how we're going to keep this up. We're not overextended because we're trying to survive, but because we're trying to gratify this physical nature and have that kind of status we want to have. And it's at that point that Satan might spring a trap. It's at that point that we might have a co-worker that invites us to do something unethical, maybe even illegal. It's at that point we might become so overwhelmed with work that, that we work all the time, day and night. We don't spend as much time as we should with our families, not because we're trying to survive again, but because we're just wanting to, to gratify those physical desires. could be that we're in a dating relationship and that a boyfriend and a girlfriend spend so much time with each other and think about how much fun they have together and how wonderful the other person is and all they can think about is each other and before long all they're thinking about is that physical gratification and that can lead to a place we don't want to go. That could lead to a physical relationship outside God's boundaries. You see, Satan will spring traps on us if we're focused only on our physical desires. That's what happened to Samson. If you'll notice also, not only were his eyes focused on physical desires, they were also closed to some serious spiritual danger. Let's look at what Delilah does as she's trying to find out this secret from Samson. She comes to him there in verse 6 and asks him where his great strength lies and with what he may be bound. And I just want to pause right here. This seems like this would be a red flag to me. If I'm Samson and the woman I love is trying to find out my weakness, but Samson keeps going and he seems to be almost toying with her throughout these verses. And he says, if they bind me with seven, fresh, seven bowstrings that, that have, are not yet dried, then my strength will leave me. And so what happens? She does just that in his sleep. She wakes him up. There are men there lying in wait. He's able to break through the bowstrings. Obviously, that wasn't the secret of his strength. And so, if you'll notice, she asks him again 
Again, if you're thinking clearly, if you're Samson, you have to start wondering. She asked me about it last time. I woke up with exactly what I told her tied to me, and now she's asking me again. And so his second option is he tells her that if I'm tied with new ropes that have never before been used, then my strength will leave me. Well, the same scenario plays itself out with the same result. Then she asks him again. And notice how his response is getting a little bit closer to the truth. He says, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom, then my strength will leave me. That will be the source of my strength. So now we've made our way to the hair. Now he's getting a little bit closer to the truth. That scenario plays itself out. It doesn't work. And finally, look at verse 16. It came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart. I need to understand, if I want to understand the story of Samson, Delilah didn't just ask him three times or four times or five times. She asked him continually every day. It was a continual questioning, a continual temptation, a continual opportunity for Samson to give in. It wasn't something that happened two or three or four times. It was something that he had to face every single day. Do you know temptation is like that? It won't be just three or four times when I'm tempted. It'll face me every single day. And what we notice is that when Samson finally does reveal to her his Nazarite vow that his strength is from God, He's still comfortable enough to fall asleep, but as he's closing his eyes to sleep, the one he loved and confided in is looking to betray him. I have to ask myself, am I closing my eyes to some physical danger, some spiritual danger, rather, that I am in? Am I closing my eyes to a spiritual situation that I have caused because I have been thinking physically and not spiritually? It's interesting, too, to realize that he appears to be comfortable with this situation. I mean, he seems in each of his answers to get a little bit closer to the truth. I need to understand when I'm comfortable with temptation, when I begin flirting with sin, trouble is not very far behind. Let me say that again. When, when I begin to get comfortable with temptation, trouble is not very far behind. Sometimes there are times in our lives where we'll sin because of a, a natural uh, or response and we didn't catch ourselves in time and we said something we shouldn't have said or, or we didn't stop ourselves in time we did something we shouldn't have done. But, you know, far more often... There are times we sin because of something we began thinking about last week or a month ago. or We've been thinking for several months now. And we might not have even told ourselves we would do it, but we began sort of rolling it around in our mind. We began getting a little more comfortable with it. Maybe it was a place we knew that we shouldn't go, doing some things we knew we shouldn't do, and yet we sort of get a little more comfortable the more we think about it. Maybe we're just flipping through television channels at night. And once you get through the infomercials, there are some programs you know that are going to have content on it you don't need to be exposing yourself to. And yet, maybe just kind of flip through, get a little more comfortable with it. And gradually, gradually, you get a little more comfortable, flirt with it a little more. And then before you know it, you can be involved in a sin and look around behind you and try to figure out how you got there. I wonder if Samson felt that way. If he wondered how he got to this point. It doesn't matter how long I've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how spiritually mature I am. The temptation that comes every day, the perpetual threat of sin can wear me down. If I'm not drawing on the power of God, if I'm not bringing my concerns and needs to Him in prayer, it doesn't matter how spiritually mature I am or how long I've been a member of the church or my family have been in the church or or what a great example I've set. Anyone, any one of us is subject to temptation and susceptible to it if we're not bringing our cares and concerns before God and asking for strength? Have you ever wondered why the media has such a field day when someone who's well-respected in religious circles falls from a high position? 
Well, we love it. We love to talk about it and read about it. Because as, as we grow and as we set examples for others around us, we don't, our chances of falling from that position, our chances of being tempted don't decrease, they increase. How much would, would Satan love to, to attack someone who has several individuals looking to them for spiritual support and guidance? You see, as we think about how long we might have been a Christian, maybe you've set an example for those around you for years. It's still not time to let your guard down. We can see from the case of Samson, even someone so strong like Samson, that from the outside looked like he had it all together. He had the long hair flowing from his Nazarite vow. He had these miraculous feats of strength. Can you imagine the stories that were told about him? And yet even this mighty man was subject to temptation. None of us are above it. We need to constantly be praying for strength to handle it. Did you notice that when Samson does the most good in his life, it's when he actually doesn't have his eyes? You see, they were focused on his pleasure. They were close to some spiritual danger. But as you see, when he's captured by the Philistines, they actually put his eyes out. I don't know if they were afraid of what he might still be able to do to him, but they put his eyes out. They put him in a situation where they can embarrass him as he is doing grinding work. And and historians tell us that was probably at that time the work of a woman. So they were humiliating this mighty man by, by taking his hair away from him and taking his eyes out and making him do the work of a woman. And so as they bring him before the crowd... There in verse 28, and they, Samson calls out on the Lord, and look at what he says. He says, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take, uh, take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. And in verse 30, Samson says, let me die with the Philistines. Very quickly, I want us to realize this morning that Samson, just like Israel, when he hit rock bottom, he looked up to God, and God was listening. This morning, if you feel like you're hitting rock bottom, God is listening. God is is a loving God who desires us all to live in accordance with His will, to come forward to submit our will to His, and to live the life He would have us to live. He's listening. The same God who listened to Samson is listening to us. It's also important for us to realize that rather than being overconfident in our own abilities, we must recognize God as the true source of our strength. See, earlier, we don't hear Samson talking too much about God. Too much about God being the source of his strength. But here, he knows. He knows that God is the only true source of his ability. Sure, he mentioned him in the few chapters beforehand. But here, can't you just hear it in his cry out to God? He knows where the true source of his strength is. And he also stopped being concerned about himself. Requesting that he die with the Philistines. And did you notice, when he stopped being concerned with himself, he did more good in accomplishing his mission than he'd ever done in his life? If I want to accomplish great things for God, I I don't need to be concerned with myself. I need to be concerned about his will. This morning, I just want us to ask a simple question that's a challenging one. Where am I looking? Is it possible that my focus is on only the physical things? Or is it possible that I have my eyes closed to spiritual danger? Do I need to turn my eyes and focus only on God? When you think about Joshua Bell there in the metro station, as he's playing away, this world-class musician, people are walking right by. We laugh at that. We might smile and think that's a really interesting, a telling story of human nature. And yet there's another story we read about in the New Testament that's even more telling. In fact, John would describe God being made flesh in the first chapter of his gospel. And in verse 4, he would say, The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not comprehend it. You see, there was a man who walked the earth 
walked among other human beings, tried to give them a message, but so many of them were so concerned with their own thoughts, their own mindset about what God was going to do, about the traditions they wanted to follow or the lives they wanted to lead, that they missed the point. And it wasn't until days after his death when Peter begins in Acts chapter 2 preaching the first gospel sermon and we see the gospel preached all throughout the book that people began to realize the one they crucified was the Christ, the Son of God. And that they had completely missed the message of the most wonderful teacher that would ever walk the face of the earth because he wasn't merely a human. He was 100% divine, 100% human, giving the message of the gospel. So many people walked right by it. This morning, let's not walk right by the message of the gospel. Let's not have our eyes focused on physical pleasure. Let's not have them close to spiritual danger. Let's focus only on God. If you're here this morning and you would want to become a Christian, you want to begin that walk with God, submit your will to His, put Him on in baptism, and begin living that life that's focused only on Him. Who knows what God could accomplish if we all make that decision? And if you want to make that decision this morning, please come as we stand and sing together.